This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and use the J. Scott promo code when signing up to receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. I'm your host, J. Scott. And I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have our good friend Ryan Olson of Whitebone Creations Hunting YouTube channel. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it sounds like uh, from the sounds of it, you might be a little groggy from a late night fishing last night. Sometimes we got to put on our big boy pants and just deal with it, but (laughs) it is worth it to catch those fish, man. I can't get enough. So Ryan, for those listeners that aren't familiar with you, you live uh, in Huntington Beach, California area, and uh, we've had you on the podcast before, and you have an unbelievable youtube channel that's just growing uh i i keep up with it and watch your videos it's just growing daily and weekly and monthly i think you've got 7500 subscribers or so and um you know that that's a really cool number but i think what's even cooler is the fact that i see the uh explosion of growth on your channel and i think that's just a testimony to or a testament to um, how much good content and the consistency of the content that you're putting putting out there, man. I appreciate that more. And you know, you know, a lot of it has been um, the success has been. Yes, I think some good content, and thank you, and um, you know, the help of the podcast and the last one, and then you know, I'm kind. I never have looked at this thing like a business or try and grow it. That it wasn't what it was about. But now it's kind of exciting to see it go. And I find I'm finding where people are really interested in certain things. Uh, the how-to world is it's amazing. I think um, as things change, people are kind of afraid to ask somebody. And they can go to YouTube on the, in their private little space and learn how to do this or that. I mean, I, I do that. So I kind of understand and relate to where they're coming from. And so, yeah, it, it's, um, it's exciting to see it grow. Um, it's pretty for sure. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, tell me about uh, your offshore fishing. Uh, you were out last night, and I've been watching your photos on Instagram and trying to keep up with you. Uh, I'm actually up here in Colorado, and uh, the rivers are uh, have turned muddy, and the runoff's in full swing. I've been able to slip out a little bit and catch some fish here and there. Um, but you know, our prime fishing's probably about thirty days away, and I uh, want to hear about what's going on with you. Gotcha. No, that's cool. I've been watching yours too, man. You've been wearing out them trout. Um, I'm on the polar opposite end of that whole spectrum. So as you know, I am right here in Huntington Beach. So I'm just maybe a mile from um, Seal Beach Lawn Tramp. We call it Huntington Harbor, but it's essentially right here. And we've still got that warm water. We've still got everything going on. I am... I am the local bass guy. I still kind of stray away from some of that big pelagic that swims out there. Those, uh, you know, the ones that everybody's after right now. You know, the bluefin are up here in huge numbers. Um, There's some guys that are just wearing them out. 
I, I say local waters, but say 50 miles offshore here, which I would still consider um, the local waters. They're catching fish now in the 140, 150 pound range, which is unheard of. Um, and, uh, and is that typical, Ryan, of this time of year that blue fins are going to be that far north or is this year different or where are we sitting with that cycle? I think it's exceptional. I think it's I think it's not uh, not a typical thing. And I think that has to do with warm waters and the abundance of, you know, red crab we got up here. Um, you know, I, before last year, I wasn't super familiar with this red crab. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a it's a red tuna crab. It looks like a crawdad with a longer elongated pincher, uh, pinchers, if you will. And man, we are literally covered up with them. Our beaches are flooded with them. A lot of the, say, the high rent districts that have beachfront properties, they're actually paying people to rake them up because they're dying in such huge numbers and stinking. And I, that's a <laughs> lot of what's got these fish here is these um, is these red crabs. It's so in other words, these red crab, I, I assume they live on the ocean floor and they're up here in abundance and then they, they crawl out uh, for whatever reason. They crawl out on the rocks and get exposed and then they die or what's going on? Yeah. And man, I, I always do this. I always start something that maybe I'm not the authority on, but they do, you know, they do live out here. We've got bumper crops of them right now, but I think certain tides and certain undertoes and currents, they'll literally push these crabs up on the surface or just below the surface. Uh, I was out the other night, just less than a mile offshore, and I was looking in the water, it's probably midnight, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? And I could see something, but it was, wasn't, it was dark, and I stuck a net in the water and drove about 10 yards and pulled it up, and I'll bet I grabbed, I don't know, three, 4,000 crabs all at once. Oh my God. They were just on the surface, were the fish boiling to them? I mean, could you hear fish or what or no, what was just, going on? You could just see a hue on the water. You could just see it. It almost looked like, you know, like in a lake where you get like foam that'll develop or something. It just, that's what it was doing. And they don't break on the surface. They just kind of kick around. Um, and I, I don't know if it's current that kicks them up or what, but I was struggling to catch fish. And um, at that point, I realized why they're all completely gorged. Um like somebody offering you a sandwich after you leave the buffet, right? Not interested. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, most of the time, I'm interested. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I am too. I'll take it for later. <laughs> but yeah, so you know that's kind of what was going on, and I think that's what's held a lot of these fish here. Plus, warm waters. Um, the yellowtail are starting to show up, um, and you know, from from Catalina to San Clemente, I guess is just crazy. If you're willing to get over there. Uh, hang on. It's just, it's wide open. And so also usually the month of June, the albacore tuna, you know, maybe down further down by San Diego is down into Mexico. Isn't that a big thing? Um, what's going on with the albacore? It's a big thing and maybe I'm not up with it, but I just don't hear about the albacore. Like the last two years, I'm just not hearing about the longfin. Um, yellowfin and bluefin, and yellow tail kind of seemed to be the deal, but um, I don't know what's going on with the albacore. You know, growing up my whole life, that's all we heard, the albacore running, the albacore running, and that was the deal. But um, even on Instagram, kind of here and there where I'm looking and peeking around, I'm not seeing the longfin. I'm just not seeing it. So I don't know. 
you know, being a bass guy, I kind of stay inside. And so I'm not sure, but, um, I don't know. I don't know if they're a colder water fish and they're, they're further up North or, or what's going on, but haven't heard. Ryan, what kind of boat do you run? Um, and walk me through kind of a typical day of, of bass fishing, uh, for, for, for you. So for me and the saltwater bass stuff, um, I have a, a Ranger Bahia. It's, it's a center council bass boat. Look very much like a like a whaler type boat. Um, it's an all white boat. It's a twenty two footer. Um, I always use the term Magnum bass boat, but it is a big bass boat. Trolling motor up front, all the electronics. Um, and so we almost always, I say we, me and a friend, family, or solo. I fished quite a bit by myself over the last couple of weeks, but. I'll just put in around somewhere between 4.30 and 8 o'clock at night. And then I run out of the harbor and then I run toward Long Beach, the port of Long Beach or Los Angeles Harbor. And I fish in those ports. So I fish rock jetties, uh, the break wall, all that stuff. And I I think I may fish just a little bit different than everybody else, but I take all my freshwater tactics and principles because they're just a bass. If they're living in salt or if they're living in fresh, they're still an ambush fish. They're still focused on using structure and relating to baits. And I literally take my freshwater gear and just go to, you know, just go to town on those fish. So I'm fishing a little bit lighter line, um, you know, how light eight and 10 pound line. And um, I'm using everything from small crankbaits to worms to whatever. I, for whatever reason, since last time we've talked, I've really been turned on to the to the deep inside, um, kind of the backwater, even some of the brackish stuff. You know, that we got three species, um, you know, the, the calico, the sand bass, and the spotted bay bass. And the spotted bay bass is probably the most alluring. You know, there's just not huge numbers of them. They don't get real big. So when you finally target and then do catch one or two of those, it's just a kind of one of those exciting moments, you know. And um, so I'm trying to figure those fish out. And that's what's really turned me on. Um, the, the sand what, what, bass have currently moved in there and they're spawning up in that harbor. And I had a night last saturday where you know a big fish in the harbor three pounds um we had a a night the other night where i had caught two over six a five a dozen fours it was just crazy what was going on and um yeah i've been out pretty much every night since (laughs) that's awesome uh what differentiates the water that the three different types of bass i mean is there any type of water that you look for for one or the other or can they all three be in the same water they there is places where they're all three in the same water but if you look at the fish uh traditionally um calicos are essentially a a kelp bass so you'll find them in big open deep water areas with a lot of kelp that's what they favor they're an ambush fish um that live up in that big kelpy stuff very 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 aggressive um sand bass will generally live with a sandy bottom a place where they can cruise around and feed primarily on the bottom 
And then spotted bay bass are essentially exactly how they sound. They're in the bays. They're in calm, brackish, dingy, shallow water. And the key to those fish is grass, eelgrass. They love that, that grass. So if you can find structure, say you're fishing around rock piles or old docks or whatever, you get that plus grass, that's where you'll find them. Um, and those things are really, really, really hard to locate. So we call it the harbor trifecta, um, where we've caught one of each species during the night. And last night we actually caught three trifectas, which was kind of fun for us. Um, I fished with a good friend and uh, a fishing mentor. It was just, just a really good night to get out. But you hear about a lot of some of the really good calico bass fishing, some of the best in the world. Is it San Clemente Island, Catalina, those type things? And over there, you don't hear of a sand bass showing up. Um, maybe in the harbors, you may find a spotty. But for the most part, when you get out and beyond that um, break wall, get toward those islands, it's primarily calicos. I'm looking at your Instagram page right now, uh, White Bone Creations, and it looks like uh, the calico bass are a darker um, where the spotted bay bass maybe is a little bit lighter color. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So the calicos are, uh, they're modeled and patterned just like a calico. Um, I'm sorry. They're, they're, they're like a calico cat, right? So they've got patterns on them. As to where the sand bass have, you know, lateral bars that go down, they're a little bit more muted. And then the spotty is... This, the spotted bay bass is called a spotted sand bass. So it's considered sand bass. It's a cousin, but it's completely covered in spots. And I want to say that the IGF all-time world record spotted bay bass came out of Newport Bay, and it's like four pounds, six ounces. Uh, wow. Yeah, they just don't get big. So when you're catching, you know, those three-plus pounders, man, you just, I mean – that's world-class fishing. World-class fishing. We caught one last year, a buddy of mine caught one last year that was 4-1 um, in a harbor that doesn't produce a lot of them. And, you know, we were like schoolgirls. We came unstuck, right? We were like, you got to be kidding me. It just, it's just really rare for a fish to get like that. And I don't know. I think maybe the challenge of that's what makes it alluring. You know, it's like catching a 12-inch golden. Yeah. You know, those just they just don't happen every day. Yeah, for sure. Let's take a quick break here. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance products. Check them out at wildernessathlete.com and use the JSCOT promo code to receive 10% off any order. 
Okay, one thing I'm going to ask you to do on your Instagram page for me mm -hmm. is take a picture of their mouths, uh, the inside, because I see a bunch of pictures with you lipping these fish. Mm -hmm. And how, uh, you know, and then there's a bunch of largemouth pictures here. What are the what are the teeth structure and the mouth structure inside their mouth compared to our freshwater bass? Yeah, I will uh, I will definitely do that for you. So um, they have much more aggressive teeth. They don't have you know barracuda type chompers or anything like that. But it's um, they have more of a tooth. Um, so, you know, when we're lipping them, you either get tough and grin or, you, you know, you put something between your finger, ace bandage, you know, band-aid tape or any of that stuff. Um, but I will. I'll get you a couple of quick pictures. And, you know, the bigger the fish, the more aggressive those teeth. Um, and, uh, you know, I tell people when they're handling those fish, if I take somebody out for the first time that's never been around them, you can't just grab them like you can a largemouth. Their gill plates, all those fish, when they get you know, say you boat a fish and you go to get a hold of them, they flare that cheek, they flare their jaws as big as they can get them. And they're covered in spines and they're sharp as a razor. So if you were to grab one, say by the back of the head, like you do and pinch their gills and kind of make them dormant, um, you're not going to be able to do that with this fish without getting cut up pretty good. So I tell people kind of handle them with care. I, I almost always go into the mouth, uh, especially if it's a big fish. And I like those uh, those Sims sun gloves. I imagine you guys use yeah. them up there when you fish, and yeah, they're just they're a great way to handle those fish. You keep you from really cutting up your hands. You know, if you're going through you know a hundred fish or let's just say eighty fish in a night, I mean you're really gonna do a number on your hands if you don't have some sort of protection. It's fun to be tough, but about tw <laughs> about twenty fish in, man, uh, you're gonna know it for the next couple of days. You're all cut up and scratched up but yeah i'll shoot you a couple of cool photos of their mouths um just to give you an idea those fish in the salt water though those bass they're just double tough in comparison to our freshwater fish i was going to ask you about that so you know a three pound fish um on the take i mean is it twice as much force uh bend in the rod right off the bat and and how much longevity do they i mean do they have a a serious fight on them or, or, uh, they, you know, they really do. And it's kind of one of those pound for pound things. So, um, the spotty's tougher than all of them. He just is, he's kind of the smallmouth bass of the salt water. And, uh, when he gets committed, he, you know, they nose down into rocks and nose down into weeds. And we had a fish the other night that took 10 minutes to land fish that wouldn't break two and a quarter pounds on eight pounds. Wow. That is awesome. And he wasn't fighting the whole time, but he'd get his nose caught in a rock and we'd keep pressure on him. And, you know, you can feel him in there, but he's got you wedged. And so you kind of trick those fish, right? You just cut him loose, give him a little, you know, slack line and hope he swims out. And every once in a while they back out of that hole and, the, you know, the fight's on again. And you know, <laughs> we're just like little kids running around that boat going, oh man, get the net. You know, you don't know what you got. And, um, you know, two pound fish just making you come out of your skin. Can you usually tell from the hookup, from the actual hit, what you have of the three species, or do you have to wait till you get them to the net? I can most of the time now, and part of it is the general water I'm in, um, and then how a fish catches. That's a fantastic question because it came up the other night. We were fishing um, sand bass 
once you get them coming, they'll roll just like a catfish. You know how a catfish will yeah. spin and spin it? Sand bass do the exact same thing. So if you're fishing them and you can feel that line jumping around, jumping around, jumping around, it's Sandy. He's rolling. Sandys generally get larger and um, most of the time our sand bass are carrying more weight than all of our other fish um, that we're catching inside. So I can tell them um, a calico is a spaz, right? He just goes crazy. You know, um, shorter head shakes, lots and lots of rights and lefts. And then I find that my spotties, they just dog you. Just straight down any hole, any... Like a tug oh, yeah. just pulling. Yeah, any yeah. piling, anything they can get into, they know the drill. Um, we use a fair, we lose a fair amount of them on that light line, and man, you know, I, I'll I'll take losing one any day. I don't I don't care, man. I just love to get bit. It's just <laughs> how how often when you have a, a bass on, um, is it likely at all ever that sea lions come eat them or sharks or in any other barracuda or any other type of fish? I mean, has that happened or is that not likely? It, it happens, but for whatever reason, it seems to be rare with the bass. Um, we had a seal last year just jump up and swim up on the boat. He, like he just jumped up and thought he'd hang out for a little while. And I thought, <laughs> what in the world, right? And he was a little guy. And, um, What'd you do? We just left him on there. You know, we took pictures of him. It's funny. I think I might even still have it on Instagram, but I actually videoed him crawling in the boat. He just laid there and like, what's up, fellas? Just just hanging out. <laughs> and so after a while, we had to leave and I needed to get him off of there. And I kept trying. I'm like, come on, man, get along, get along. I finally had to pick him up and throw him off. Um, so I offered him a little calico and it's, it, he wasn't interested in it snubbed his nose out. yeah he was like whatever i don't eat that fish and i was like you're kidding me. <laughs> and i know they do but i think maybe part of it uh versus say uh, mackerel and the stuff that, and i'm talking the smaller seals but the um the mackerel and stuff they eat i think it's a much much uh softer flesh i think maybe when they get to biting around those those small bones and stuff maybe it's just not for them uh, yeah and i and i don't know that i know but I think that's the deal with that seal. He wanted nothing to do with that calico. Nothing. <laughs> oh, man. That's a pretty cool story. Um, how often do you break off a fish? Like where the actual line, because you're fishing around a lot of structure, are, are you using monofilament or are you using spider? What are, you, what are you using and do you break off very often? I use, um, I use all three. I, I fish. Um, when I'm fishing tight in the rocks on the break wall, I almost always throw braid. I throw between 65 and 80 pound braid tied to a fluorocarbon leader. So we use like an RP knot or a Polaris knot or whatever. And I use maybe like a three foot leader to 20 pound fluorocarbon. And in that setup, I don't lose a ton of fish because I've got a bunch of horsepower. Um, if I'm fishing inside under the, you know, under daylight conditions, I'm fishing eight pound fluorocarbon straight. And as long as I get those fish in some free water, I don't lose. Very rare. We may we may break off fish maybe two a night out of 100. And most of the time, it's due to us not taking care of a knot or going through too many fish and having it fray up some line. Um, so we're kind of getting away with murder. 
And you talk about um, the sea lions and the seals not wanting to eat the fish. Uh, are you releasing a lot of these fish or how good are they to eat? And tell me a little bit about if you do eat them, how do you prepare them? Uh, they are fantastic to eat. There's always been this uh, kind of, I've never eaten a spotted bay bass. I probably, I probably won't, mostly because of where they live. So the, most of the fish I'm doing now in, let's just say behind the break wall toward the bay, those are considered a red zone. You're just not supposed to eat those fish in there, and we don't. It's the Port of Long Beach, so they, we've got tankers, and it's an ugly fishery. If you go in there, you're going to be like, this is not, you know, it's not like you're looking at Pike's Peak in the back. It's it's ugly, yeah. you know. Um, but the fish are healthy. They do well in there, and, you know, we're kind of in it to – catch them so those fish stay um and if we're looking to eat some fish i always get on the other side of the break wall and i'll kind of target some of the rigs or wrecks or humps and um you know that's that's how we produce those fish they got to be 14 inches to keep i would prefer to keep and eat sand bass because we have big numbers more size that type stuff with calicos we say they're slow to grow so we let them go However, I've eaten plenty of calico, um, and I just fillet them, skin off, and um, we fry them if the kids are doing it. But we just had a big party the other day for my son. He turned 17, and um, I actually took a recipe from Robert Arrington, um, as you know, deer meat for dinner. And I, it just sounds so nasty, but it's unbelievable. So I fillet that fish. And we season it with whatever you're using, your Lowry's, your Tony Sasher's, your Everglades, whatever you're using. And then you take that fish and you cover it in mayo, literally mayonnaise. Sounds dreadful. And then you stick it in the oven, 350, nine or 10 minutes. And the mayonnaise essentially is oil and flour and egg white. So it, it, it just kind of cooks away. More than anything, makes it like a white sauce. But you have never had fish more tender in your whole life um don't know what it is if it has to do with that or if it's just the moisture that's retained in the fish or whatever and then we'll just um we'll eat that in fish tacos my wife will eat it with vegetables uh over rice it's it's really really good robert shows it where he uses um like a coconut crust on it to where he'll yeah, I saw that video. That was a good one. Yeah, and and I seen him do it a couple of different times and I thought, you know what, I'll just try it. And um to be honest with you, that's how I that if I had somebody come over and I was worried about having a nice meal, that's the way I cook it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. What this summer, um, is there any particular bite that you're also anticipating um outside of the bass arena or do you stick primarily with the bass no i'm really excited you know i've got this this bass fishing thing figured out and i really do enjoy it um but you know uh several hours into the night i'm thinking man i i should be doing something else with my time just because you know we're getting them pretty good but i love when the yellowtails show up locally and when i say locally from from you know five miles in that's where i really like to be because my time is even though I fish a lot, my time is still limited as to where I can get out and go get them and get back in. And uh, when the yellowtails show up in front of Newport or they show up near our local rigs out here, that's hard to beat. Because now you're taking your same bass gear, um, 
you know, little bit heavier leaders. Um, and then we're catching, you know, yellowtail between 15 and 30 pounds. And now you've got a real good meal. You can put some fish in the freezer. We, we smoke a lot of that fish, can a lot of that fish. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to those yellowtail getting in here a little bit closer. Typically on a normal year, you know, what is it, a two-week window? What kind of window and when is that normally and how do you, you know, how is it going to rate this year? I think it's going to be really, really good. The rumor is it's going to be as good as last year. And last year I got them for, for two full months. You know, we got them from like about middle of June till September 1. You know, and I'm sure they were here after that, but we just, we started hunting right then. I mean, it was kind of, the boat just got tucked away and another agenda, but, um, you know, and I think we're going to get the same and as much fish is up here as what they're catching further out. I think, I think it's just going to happen here in the next week or so. Oh, wow. So you're poised and ready for it to happen. Oh, oh man, I'm chomping at the bit and um, <laughs> I can't, I'm hoping I don't miss it because I'm headed to africa here middle of july and i hope it doesn't i hope i can get some in before i you know head down there for that trip i forgot about you going to africa that's exciting but yeah i know what it's like to try and catch a uh a certain bite before you've got you know you, you know you only have a certain window so i know i know the feeling let's take another quick break here gohunt.com insider is by far the most valuable tool a western hunter could give themselves GoHunt.com Insider are the industry leaders and number one source for Western hunting for a lot of reasons. GoHunt.com Insider have changed the game for how hunts and hunting information are found. Within a matter of minutes using filtering 2.0, you'll be able to filter by state, species, residency, odds of drawing a tag, specific hunting dates, and harvest success percentages to find the hunts that fit exactly what you're looking for. If you are a guy that applies across the West or just in your home state but want to find some new opportunity, there's no better way to do it than using GoHunt.com Insider. As an exclusive offer to my listeners, if you sign up for a GoHunt.com Insider membership for $149 a year and use the promo code JSCOTT, at checkout, you'll receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Head on over to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and get yourself the most valuable membership a hunter could have. I have known the owners of the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix for over 20 years. They are the authority on optics and hunting gear. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods, mounting accessories, and pack systems for all hunters. Their customer service is the best in the business. Go to Outdoorsmans.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any Outdoorsman's products. Okay, Ryan, I want to talk to you about um, cleaning skulls. I know on your YouTube channel, uh, White Bone Creations Hunting, uh, you have a ton of how-to videos and I want you to walk through kind of step by step uh, for my listeners uh, how to clean skulls, kind of the do's and don'ts, if you would, please. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, in a lot of those films, although the, the same exact principles apply for most all animals, 
I get a lot of, say, subscriber or request that, hey, would you do this or would you do that? And that's why you see similarities come up. But um, I don't mind making them. And I, and, I, and I have a ton of skulls come through here all the time. So I will. And I'll kind of just give it a, a, a real quick 101 so everybody's savvy on what we're talking about. Um, so when we're cleaning skulls or animals that were harvested or, say, ha wherever you've got this animal skull, there's really four methods of cleaning. Um, I'm self-taught. I've been doing it for 20-some-plus years, <clears throat> more in the last, I'd say, 10 years. But um, there's the boil method, which is what I do, just because it's the resource that I have, and it's by far the fastest. Not always the best, but the fastest. Then there's that uh, dermisted beetle, or dermisted, I think is how you say it, where the beetle guys actually, they have colonies of beetles. They'll put a skull right in it, and it'll eat it away. Um, that's extremely favorable if you have animals that you don't want shrink. Bears, lions, sheep. You know, when you guys are scoring these record book ramps, you're doing pretty good chance you're not sending those to a boiler. Um, there's the rot off method where they'll actually soak it in water for months on end. And then the, you know, the, the debris will actually just decay off. And then there's the hot power washer method. Um, and <clears throat> you know, just, just food for thought, that's how it goes. But the way I do it, I kind of break it down into three different animal types. You have your antlered animals, you have your horned animals, and you have non-antlered or horned animals. Um, and the only real difference is, is how you prepare the horns. Once you've got the horn piece taken care of or antler piece taken care of, then it's all the same principle. So a couple of, uh, I guess, through trial and error, and I think some of the best advice, when you harvest an animal and you're wanting to European the skull or you're wanting to have a clean skull done, I wouldn't remove the hide and tissue and meat until you're ready to handle that. Now that comes with some stipulations, but let's just say you're hunting out of state and you kill a mule deer buck and you want to European it. I would recommend not pulling off the hide because what happens is that thing is going to start to dry and those oils and meat, they're going to start to get into the bone. With the skin on, it's hydrated, and the meat and all that stuff is staying somewhat raw, if that makes any sense. When you pull that hide off and it starts to draw, all those oils are going to suck right into that bone, and you're going to have natural discoloration. In the same breath, when you're traveling from state to state, in most of the western states that have uh, a chronic wasting disease issue, all that stuff, you have to move, remove eyes and brains. That's part of the law. So I get guys go, hey, I skinned it because of the chronic waste. You can still pop out eyes and you can still blow the brain out. And I would say take it to the local car wash, jam it in the brain hole, blow it free, and you're good to go. If you do have to take the hide off, cover it in a plastic bag and zip tie it around the horn so you're not letting that skull dry if that makes sense do you want to get it wet or put it under a hose and then cover it with a bag or does that matter you can that's a great idea or if you have the room 
man, five gallon bucket, put some water in there, put it in the cooler with some water. I just, once it starts to dry, I'm always, I'm less happy with the product that comes out of a real dry skull that comes to me than a skull that I got to skin fresh and do. Um, just food for thought. If you if you get a dried skull or you've been out of state for a week and it's dried and nasty, before you do any part of the boiling, I would say soak it in clear water. Um, you'll hear through all this, the soak it piece of information is probably one of the most critical. Um, it's how we get out grease and things like that. So once you're ready to go, I use a couple of tools, a couple of things you're going to need. You're going to need a way to boil the skull. So I use like turkey fryers that you get from Walmart or Bass Pro or anywhere. Um, and I use a little power washer from Lowe's. It's a 1600 PSI electric. It's 99 bucks. I've done over a thousand skulls with the same little power washer. It just gets the job done. And when you say little, how, how little is man, it? It's a, I'm not kidding you. It's maybe, um, I don't know, maybe 12 inches wide and maybe two foot tall. And, okay. and it literally just hangs on. I, I just put a screw in the bench out there and just hang it right on the bench. And it's, I mean, it's little, I bet the thing doesn't weigh seven pounds, eight pounds. It's, it's okay. pretty light. So kind of, fr you know, from there, I know that was a big preface there, but, um, so once you're ready to go, um, you want to skin your animals opposite of how you would skin, say, if you were going to cape one. So when you're caping an animal, you try and take no meat at all, right? You make nice, clean cuts and all that stuff. I would say do the exact opposite when you're doing skulls. Take every piece of meat, every anything you can cut off with a knife is going to save you some time in the boil. Take as much as you can off. Um, just so I'm clear, you want to, that you want to clean the skull as much as you possibly can with, and don't leave any meat on the skull at all. That's ideal. If you okay. leave meat on there, it will still come off, but what it's going to, it's going to take more energy, more BTUs of energy to cook through all that. And you're wasting a lot of time and energy. If you just took it, skinned it, threw it in the pot, you could make it work. It's just going to be more work for you than if you were to remove the tongue, remove the jaw, rem you know, all that stuff. So you're just, I was like painting a wall. The little bit of prep will make it a lot nicer in the end and happen quite a bit faster. So <clears throat> um, once you've got it skinned, I fill up a pot with water. And, I, and only this is the only place I want to get a little more detailed so I don't send somebody the wrong direction. If you've got a deer with brown horns or an elk or whatever, you want to make sure you cover from the pedicle up the horn as far into the pot as the water is going to be. So if I take a, a, an elk and I put it in the pot and my water comes up the horn six inches, you want to make sure you've got that covered in plastic and tape or something. Because as you know, you know, deer rubbing their antlers on brush and trees and stuff like that so that coloration on there essentially is dirty saps and stuff like that we're now going to be rinsing and cleaning you don't want to have discoloration where the water went up the horn it will just not look good um i've literally spent 20 years trying to perfect this because i've recolored horns 
uh, just forever. And I can always tell from the guy doing the work, I can tell instantly that that had to get touched up. And I hate to see my work come that way. So, but if you and how do you recommend covering the horns? What is the best way? I take a plastic bag, uh, trash bag, trash bag, bag. whatever. I mean, somebody always gives me a skull every time I get a skull. It's in a plastic bag. So I'll just take a knife and cut it up, and I'll wrap that that pedicle and all the way up the horn. And then I literally take electrical tape, and I just I just electrical tape the outside of that bag as good as I can. And what I'm ultimately trying to do is prevent any of that soaps or anything to just go up there and boil free the beautiful color of that horn. Right. That's where it is. Now, if it's a horned animal, say it is a antelope, we're going to have to boil those horns off first. And this is the only reason I'm making this somewhat complicated right here. So if it's an antlered animal, cover those horns so it doesn't discolor. If it's a horned animal, I'm going to tell you to put no degreaser of any kind in the pot until those horns come off. So in the situation of an antelope, I'm going to take, put him in the pot, horns down. I'm going to bring that thing to a boil. There's no exact science on timing, but I would say 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops. Then I'm going to pull that antelope out and I'm going to twist those horns off. I'm going to twist the outer sheath of those horns off. Then I'm going to add a scoop of OxyClean. It seems to be the best. You can use dish soap. You can use laundry detergent. I have literally used every degreaser I could get my hands on, and I put it in with the boil, the initial boil. But I don't want I don't want people to put, you know, say you had a painted ram or anything with a horn, and you start putting those chemicals in with the horn, it, it could discolor or damage the horn. And once the horns are off, put something in the boil and then um, get it rolling, right? You got some time at this point. You got your head in the bottom of the boil. It's boiling. You can either A, turn it down to a simmer or you can leave it at a full rolling boil. I don't have a preference. It's just time. And one of the number one questions I get is, um, when do I know it's ready? When do I know it's ready? And I can only give you rules of thumb because different aged animals versus different sized animals. It's, it's too general to just give you a hard facts. So I tell people when the skin on top of the nose, the bridge of the nose starts to separate. So when it splits and you can see the skull there, you're ready to start power washing. So I pull those skulls out, doesn't matter what it is. And I start to power washing it. Um, can I ask you one question sure, before you? Sure. What if you were to throw the the head in there with the hair and everything on it? What would happen? It's just gonna it's just gonna create a mess for you. Um, okay. You can do it, and I have done it. Um, I've had a lot of guys send me something like, "Hey, you know, I set it on the ant pile out back, and it's starting to stink." <laughs> yeah. I'm like, "Awesome, bud!" You know, and I've had it to where, oh, I could just tell you some horror stories, um, but. Yeah, you could do that and you could boil it, but same idea is you're now now you're having to boil through the hair, you're having to boil yeah. through all that stuff. So it makes it difficult. There's some situations okay. where if you had hair on and it was dried and locked on there, you're just going to have to soak that for a couple of days in just water and then get it loosened up to where you can skin it off and then kind of start the process back over. So, okay. yeah, and I've got okay. film that came up on 
you know, I've had people ask what I do with the deadhead and all that stuff. <clears throat> if guys are really wanting to see it, I do have it up on that channel. Um, and I'll literally, I'll build a video for anybody. If they've got a particular animal they want to see and I can get my hands on one legally, I'll do it for you. No problem. Um, okay. so, all right. Back to power wash. Okay. So you pull out your skull, the, 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 Skin has split on the top of the nose. It's just a good reference piece. I can always tell from there. And then you just start power washing. And I, I carry on about it on my videos. Um, but every hole, every orifice, anywhere that there's a place where tissue can grow, you're going to want to spray it clean. If you're spraying and you've got a super tight place, and as you're spraying, you can see now that you've got down to red meat, it needs to go back in the boil for a little bit longer. So a lot of times I'll take, for instance, a pig. I'll take a pig. He'll be split up the nose. I'll power wash 10 or 15 minutes and get a bunch of stuff off. And then I'll just put him right back in the boil for another 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is. And it will continue to break down that, you know, all that tissue and all that tendon and stuff and then have it wash off. I don't have a foolproof put it in, boil it for an hour, pull it out, wash it. It's, it's not, it's not that simple. Um, in the same breath, I've got to where you could drop me off a pig and I could say, go take a long lunch and you can come back and pick it up completely done. So you'll get into the pattern where you'll, you'll understand that this is how long this takes. Um, anyway, once you're boiling, you want to be aware on any animal, um, of the teeth. Most animals, 90% of them, the front teeth will come out. None of the back teeth uh, typically come out for me. I just don't have to take them out. But like with pigs, I remove the tusks and the front piece because there's a nerve ending in there. I want to take that out. Otherwise, it'll create discoloration and odor. Um, anyway, so going through the process, kind of a general rule, right? We get it all let's take, let's take a quick break here, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service, and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camel patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at utahhydrographics. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. So we've got the skull clean. We've taken it out of the pot. 
Um, at this point, I changed. I I I got I got a clean skull essentially, pretty much degreased, and now I'm going to put it in what I call my whitener um, or the color batch. I dump all that old water. I sweep up all my loose debris because it'll look like. You know, it's going to look like you took a can of tuna and threw it all over the yard. That's kind of what it's going to look like, right? We're just breaking off fibrous pieces. And this is the critical piece. This is the part of my method that I think is unique to me and what I've um, what I've showed out there that's had such a big response. I really think this is the piece of the puzzle that people have um, been drawn to. So I take and I make a 50-50 mix of liquid peroxide, 40% by volume. It's also called a liquid developer. It's just essentially it's peroxide, liquid peroxide. And I mix 50% peroxide, 50% water. And I put the skulls back in the pot. And I bring that mix, 50% water, 50% peroxide, to a boil, depending on the skull, maybe 10 minutes. Then I pull it out and rinse the last of the, the debris. So I don't know exactly what happens chemically, but when I bring that peroxide to a boil, it is instant white and anything on that skull, I don't care what it is, is loosened up and coming off. Um, if there's a tight spot of tendon, like on the back of the head or anywhere, that's essentially coming off with that peroxide boil. So I pull it out of the pot, I give it a real good rinse, set it in the sun to dry and essentially you will have an absolutely beautiful somewhat flawless skull and there's a bazillion details i could get into per species but just as a general rule that's how i do it i do like to sun dry them i think it makes them even a little bit whiter and then once they're dry i will glue teeth back in um, and then I like to take and I cover them all in a coat of mop and glow, um, just a flooring product you can buy almost anywhere. And instead of having a skull that sits on a shelf that will eventually collect dust and all that stuff, the mop and glow will lay into that bone, give it a, like a light lanolin smell, and then just kind of seal everything in. It doesn't create shine unless you're putting multiple coats on, um, but then annually, as you're going through your trophy room or a big spring cleaning or whatever, you can just take and wash that thing with soap and water, and it'll look as good as the day you finished it. And I just think that's a big piece of the puzzle to having your, you know, your trophy room look nice and fresh. Um, but that's kind of the 101 and how I do it. Uh, okay, I have a couple questions. Yeah, go ahead. And then I'll, I also, I just wrote a list of frequently asked questions too, but give me what you got and I'll see if they're the same. Where do you get the peroxide? Number one question every time. <laughs> Literally every day. I had a guy call from Alberta, Canada yesterday and called and said, hey, where do you get it? I buy it from the beauty supply. Um, right around the corner from me, there's a little local beauty shop. Um, they refer to me as the skull guy and I buy it in gallons. I I can't speak to a particular brand because I get everything that they can get their hands on. Liquid peroxide is getting harder and harder to find. The beauty supplies, you know, they're selling a cream peroxide because they're coloring the girls' hairs with whatever they're doing with it. So liquid's kind of rare. But I did just get a tip, thanks to the uh, internet there, that a buddy said, hey, 
the pool guys use peroxide to clean spas and hotels or wherever there's a community pool. Peroxide is a great degreaser. It's a great sanitizer. So they buy it in bulk. And I'm, I'm looking that direction to see if that works. Uh, if I can get my hands on some of that, maybe that industrial stuff. Um, I have enough surplus skulls to where I can try it before and make sure it's okay before I would recommend it to somebody to put on their, you know, their, their annual trophy or whatever. I'd hate to give advice to somebody and have something get wrecked, but I'm looking in that direction because the peroxide is expensive. How much? What are, what are you talking usually? Uh, if you were to look on Amazon, you may pay 20 bucks a gallon. I want to say I pay $14 a gallon. And if I can get a 50-gallon drum of it from these guys, I may wind up being a buck a gallon. Yeah. Um, what are the downsides of using peroxide? And do you wear a mask or do you, you know, there's got to be a little bit of caution not getting it in your eyes. Uh, talk me through a little bit of that. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, just naturally it's a chemical. So if you, let's just say you were pouring in the pot and you weren't paying attention and it splashes on you, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll feel you'll feel the burn and you can look down at your skin and say, well, that's where it dropped, right? And it, it'll just start to turn white. So it is a chemical, it is an acid. So you want to be careful with that. Um, once you've washed it off, it doesn't hurt you. So this is ultimately is the exact same product that they're mixing with like a, um, a bleach paste and they're painting on the, the girl's hair. So when they're doing that, those girls can feel a natural skin burn. It's not a long time burn. It just, once it's rinsed clean, it's good. But um, I would recommend when it boils, don't put your head over the boil and try and breathe it. I've never had any symptoms or side effects or anything, but I'm also pretty cautious of what I'm doing. Um, somebody recently said, Hey, you have to be careful. You know, they use peroxide and jet fuels. And I'm like, well, I'm adding water and it is physically not, it is not, <laughs> it is not flammable. Um, and if you get it boiling to where you've had too much of a mix, say it's not 50-50. I don't want people to think that it has to be 50-50. That's just a real easy general rule of thumb. I've used 10% peroxide, 90% water. I've used 100% peroxide. They're going to find their mix, whether it's from a financial or a resource standpoint. If you have less of a concentration, leave your skulls in longer. If you have a higher concentration, leave them in there less. If, that's kind of the basics of it. You can also reuse that peroxide over and over and over again. So I, uh, I made reference on a pig video that I can take and get about 60 pig skulls out of a batch of peroxide. I don't. When you say batch, you're talking a couple gallons worth? Yeah. So if I take a big pot, I can do three or four pigs at the same time. Um, so that probably is four gallons of four gallons of peroxide, four gallons of water. And you're naturally going to lose some to evaporation. You'll lose some, you know, from transferring from pot to pot. And then of course you're going to boil out still fats and grease and things like that. So when it chills, I skim the surface. I always lose a little tiny bit and I start to displace with water. Um, peroxide is extremely light sensitive. So when you're storing it, store it in a bucket, store it in a shady place, get it covered because the UV will actually kill the integrity of the peroxide. I learned that early on as well. So, but it's, it's the piece of the puzzle that will make your skulls correct. A lot of people ask, hey, can I use household bleach? Household bleach will yellow your skulls. You will be absolutely unhappy. 
plus it will it will start to etch the the bone so you want to be real careful there with uh, household bleach um, you also if you have a super high concentration you bring it to a boil it will start to foam up and over the pot that's a good symptom that hey you you've got too much peroxide in there you need to be careful or turn your boil way down to where you're just starting to percolate right hot peroxide is the ultimate degreaser whitener um, if you were to just bring it to a boil and leave say a deer skull in there for make three or four hours your deer your deer skull is just going to be chalky and beat up and flexible and you, you would have essentially destroyed your deer skull so so you can leave it in too long you definitely can yeah you definitely can and you recommended how long uh, leaving it in the peroxide? Once I bring it to, like on a deer skull, let's just say we shoot, a, we shoot a deer and I get that deer skull clean. I bring it to a boil. The second it hits a boil, I turn it off. And then I can pull a deer skull out and rinse it. A pig, I'll leave in there 10, 20, 30 minutes. Completely different bone structure. But it is going to be clean and white on a deer, antelope, even an elk by the time it hits a boil. So you can bring it to a boil and shut the heat off, leave it in there for a couple minutes while you're getting your things in order, pull it out, rinse it real good. I go back through with the power washer because it's going to expose stuff that you didn't get off in the original power wash. And then once it's all off there, man, sit it in the sun and you know, you'll just be, you'll be excited. You'll be, you'll be really good. I've had so many people call over the last year saying, hey, you know, it's this is the rewarding part of putting up uh, a do-it-yourself how-to. Is so many people say, "Hey, I, I started a business because of the video," or you can't believe how well the skulls have turned out because of the video, and that that part makes you want to do another one for somebody else. Um, and it's just a little bit different methodology than what's out there. Um, kind of a trial and error deal, and it really will fast track your skull work. And I tell people, don't just leave it alone. Make sure you're watching the process as you go because you should be able to take, after you've done a few, take a deer from the field to where you start in an hour. You could have that thing, a finished product to go on your wall. That's very rare, you know. Wow. And just to be clear, Ryan, um, you you accept skulls from people and you you do this. You also charge and you do this, correct? I do. Yeah. It started out as I would do it for friends and family just because I couldn't afford my own taxidermy. Ultimately, I still don't think I can afford my own taxidermy. <laughs> but I started doing all the skull work and learning. I was intrigued by it because I was learning so much about the animal that I that I didn't learn in chasing them or whatever, right? I, I I can go on and on about this piece, but I wanted to bring them home to show the kids, say, hey, look at this animal. And the kids would put on gloves and they would touch the eyes and touch the nose and touch the tongue. And they were just, it wasn't gross to them. They were kind of fascinated by the whole thing. And so as I would get somebody say, hey, can you do a bison? Can you do this? Oh, sure. And I would bring those home and the kids, the neighbor kids, the neighbors, they, they could all kind of experience this they would learn that the nose and eyes and everything connects to the brain you learned all that in school but to see it is is fantastic so that's where it all started and then through word of mouth i started doing skulls for other people and so i average about 300 skulls a year no advertising <clears throat> i'm what i'm happy to do a skull for anybody um it, you definitely, you know, if, I, if I'm having skulls shipped to me, you definitely need the right paperwork. 
we, everybody knows we're in California and it's just, just we're a retarded place when it comes to moving game animals and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm happy to do it. And that a lot of, um, a lot of the experience that I've had on doing critters that I've never, ever hunted before, which is people sending me skulls. So yeah, I'm happy to do that. I'm scared to death if I actually advertised, if I could keep up with it with my real job, but, um, Hey, it's worth it. Right. <laughs> Yeah. I noticed in your videos, looking at your YouTube um, channel, you also seem to wear gloves most all the time. I do. I do. And that kind of started with the time the kids came around. Um, I just, cause I'm always in and out of the house. Like I can do this process. It's going to sound crazy. I'll freak a bunch of people out, but I can go out and skin a pig, get everything ready to go and put it in the pot. I can go make dinner. I, come, yeah. I can go make dinner. We can have dinner that time. Everything's ready to go. And not that, you know, I'm washing hands anyway, but at least with the gloves, I can pull off what I've got. Um, I can get back to it. I also wear them because I'm not much of a hand model. I don't want people to have to see my, 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 my beat up old mitts. But um, yeah. You know, what, what type of gloves do you prefer? Man, I, I've been through all of them and I love this particular glove. I buy it at AutoZone or something and it's called a Black Diamond. It's a latex glove. I don't like the nitrile. But this thing will literally stretch a country mile. Um, I have them in every pack, every bag. And I can actually take, for example, I wear it in an extra large. But I can take the head of a of a doe, who's probably the largest, and I can hold her mouth and pull that glove over her entire head and not have it tear. So wow. if we're on a hunt and I shoot a coyote and I want to give that coyote, if I want to clean up that coyote to do a film and then give it to a local uh, museum or care center, something like that, where the nature center, then what I'll do is I'll just take and cut that coyote's head off. I'll put that, I'll grab his nose and I'll pull that glove over my hand and then I can pack it around with me the rest of the day, not get a plaque, you know, a, a pack bloody or full of fleas or ticks or whatever. And so this glove has just been the answer for me. Um, and it's made by black diamond and it's, it's, fantastic i just did a uh one on a bobcat skull and right at the end of the video i kind of show that piece um but i i literally use them for everything you know how people um you know you're hunting in the snow you put a piece of tape over the barrel yeah i take a latex glove and i cut the finger off and tie a knot at the bottom and it's the best barrel cover i've had people cut their finger and i've used that particular glove as a as a tourniquet if you will you know i it's just you slide a Glatex glove over a hand that's been cut, and it'll clot itself right now. I mean, some of those tricks that you find on accident. But, um, yeah, those gloves have saved my butt for a long time. Oh, that's good to know. That's a great little tip there. Uh, one last kind of weird question. I know in Mexico, um, when we boil skulls and stuff down there, cooster hunting, um, sometimes the cowboys and stuff they like to boil the skull and the cheek meat and some of the different stuff and then they actually eat some of it. right have you ever done it? i haven't um i get a lot of comments on that it's funny you say that um so barbacoa right is just essentially a cow's head and they you know they put peppers and stuff in there and they cook it down and it's all that head meat um i i the deal with the wild animal i get people all the time say hey i can't believe you're not saving those pig cheeks those pig cheeks well, that's a big deal with farm-raised pigs. They have these huge jowls and stuff. 
and I almost put together a video, but I thought it seemed a little more like I was picking on somebody. But I'm like on a wild pig, when you cut that cheek meat, which is maybe, I don't know, half inch thick total, it's got more sinew and tendon and stuff in it. Like, it's just crazy. Um, and on a deer, when you get down to it, there's not a ton there. There is some. Um, I did give a couple of tongues to a good friend of mine who is a wild game chef and he made lengua tacos out of a couple of bison tongues he said it was one of the best ever <laughs> and i was like cool not interested man i i mean sure it would be, <laughs> i'm sure it would be good to eat but you know some something about all the pigs and stuff i go through i've had some come in that are just covered in some of the worst stuff you can imagine <laughs> so you've seen more maggots oh, than you than you can dream oh of. man i had a box one time that was trying to crawl off the porch and i was like <laughs> in the world so maybe that's what turns me off but um i think on those wild animals maybe your coos deer are different but we just don't there's not a ton of meat on there you know i don't yeah. i don't ever think that hey man i gotta save this particular spot or whatever um yeah. so Awesome stuff. Well, I know the listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. Um, I want to thank you for being on with us. Uh, as always, I, your first podcast that we did was very well received, and I know this one will too. I want to give you a chance to uh, let people know where they can find you. Uh, so please do that for me, Ryan. Yeah, you can. Um, probably the best is my email. Um all one word whitebonecreations at gmail.com um again i know we talked last time i'm pretty new to instagram but i'm figuring out the whole direct message thing it's at whitebonecreations and then on youtube you can always send me a comment there to um whitebonecreations hunting at youtube and um you know, if you guys shoot me a message and you want to talk to me direct, I'm happy to send you a cell number. It's the same business line as I got. It's, it's, it's all the same. I'm happy to answer questions. If for some reason I don't pick up, it's only because I'm, you know, A, with a customer or something like that. I'm not ignoring you. Um, I will call. Or you're fishing. Yeah, or I'm, yeah real good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I will call you back and uh, love to share what I know. And I've had so much feedback from people who are saying hey maybe try this or try that i don't for one second think that i know everything in this i'm always learning and i love the feedback both ways and if i ever say something maybe that is inaccurate to their method or whatever i would really like to know because i'm not trying to play know-it-all I'm, I'm just trying to help what what does work for me for sure well, and I encourage everyone to go to uh, Whitebone Creations Hunting YouTube channel and subscribe and check it out. He's got Ryan's got some phenomenal videos there. And um, uh, let's conclude here by um, what uh, do you have any hunts coming up? Uh, I know you're going to Africa to do some filming. Um, did you draw any particular tags, or what are you looking for this fall? Man, I. Um... I got a bunch going on since I talked to you last. Um, I was invited to go up and film an Audad hunt in Texas, and it came with hunting an Audad, which is really exciting. So in September, I'm, I'm doing an Audad hunt back there. Um, Wyoming, we just got a huge plate full. Um, I have a little lease back there. I did draw an elk license, and um, we've got two mule deer, two whitetail, and six antelope to harvest on that lease. 
uh, put in for the Sierras here in California. Hopefully we'll draw that as a, as a party. And then, um, you know, a bunch of the youth hunts that's coming up this year. I'm working with a group that started a 5013C. doesn't even have a name yet, but they're going to really support youth hunts right here in Southern California. There are a handful of things that go on, but I'm always pushing for, you know, what happens next. And I want to see if we can grow that piece of it. Um, and then I think that's it. You know, we got our dove hunt in... Um, in Arizona, which is just a great family time, you know, just a, I think shooting doves is an excuse to eat, you know, I, is that September 1st you guys go for the open? Yep. 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 And it's just, a, it's such a great hunt. We spend, uh, we spend about an hour and a half hunting and about eight hours cooking, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect hunt, but I had friends draw tags everywhere this year. Uh, you know, you drew on the beaver. That's crazy. I had a friend. I, know. I had a friend draw uh, a San Juan bull tag rut hunt. Another buddy draw uh, a youth elk hunt in Utah rifle youth bull hunt. It's just, um, man, I wish I could keep up with all of them, but I'm, I'm getting to the point where I can't. I hear you. I hear yeah. you. Well, awesome. Well, the next time I talk to you, you'll probably be back from Africa. So uh, wish you safe travels there. And um, thank you for all of the great information and keep up the great work on the content on the YouTube channel. Look forward to, I'm sure you'll have a bunch of Africa pieces on there and, and such. Uh, for sure. Uh, and uh, hopefully that yellowtail bite hits here so you can get out there and catch some fish before you head to Africa. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, thanks a ton for having me on. I love it. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I think I'm on it about as quick as anybody when they air. So, Sounds good, buddy. Thanks for your support, and uh, we'll be chatting at you, okay? Thanks, Jay.